All right, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Please find your seats if you haven't already. Welcome back to our Fundamentals of the Faith series. We are almost complete. This is our second to last lesson. We are back talking about obedience. This is part two. Let's pray, and then we will see what the Lord has for us. Lord God, please make this an edifying time. Help us to understand profound truths regarding obedience so that we might be encouraged, convicted, transformed, Lord, to obey for the joy set before us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, today we're talking about obedience, the increased conformity to Christ and his commands that is expected of all true believers. Consider again something that we stressed last time in obedience part one. God is not simply after our obedience, but our hearts. Or we could say it this way, God is after obedience from the heart. Let me give you the statement that I gave you last time, a key concept for our lesson on obedience. The Lord desires his people to obey him out of a heart of love and thankfulness rather than as mere duty or an attempt to earn God's favor. We saw this last time. We're going to see that theme reinforced again and the other things we're going to see about obedience today. We could say more briefly, the Lord wants us to find joy in following him in obeying him and serving him, for that gives him the greatest glory. This point is well illustrated by a famous analogy from John Piper, which I've altered slightly. Maybe you've heard this before. Imagine a husband who comes home from work early and surprises his wife with a beautiful bouquet of flowers to celebrate their wedding anniversary. He then tells her that he's already arranged a babysitter for the kids, so that the husband can take his wife out on a date to her favorite restaurant, and then they can spend the rest of the evening together. The wife is so pleasantly surprised. She didn't know anything about this. She says to her husband with a smile, you didn't have to do all this. Why did you do it? Imagine three different responses that the husband might give to that question, and then ask which response would bring his wife the most honor and the most blessing. Imagine first that when asked why he arranged a nice anniversary celebration for her, the husband says, it's my duty. I didn't really want to, and I don't feel any particular, particular joy in it, but I know a good husband should do all these things, so I did them for you. How do you think his wife would respond to that? Yeah, that's a good way to spoil the whole anniversary, the, the whole celebration. Just cancel your dinner, cancel your plans, because it's not going to go well from here. Why? Because that's not honoring to her. That's dishonoring to her. You, you don't... This is the way you feel? Or imagine uh, another response. Imagine next, when asked why he went out of his way to do all these anniversary plans, the husband says, it's so that you will give me the things that I want. I don't really love you, but I do love what you can do for me, so I hope that this will make you like me so that I can cash in on favors later. How do you think his wife would respond to that? It's even worse. It's certainly just as bad. This is really an insult. He's trying to selfishly manipulate and use his wife. That's disgusting. But now imagine a third response. When asked why he arranged these anniversary acts for her, the husband says, it's my delight. I love you, 
and am so grateful for all that you do for me and the kids. I therefore find great joy in bringing joy to you. Now, how do you think his wife would respond to that? Exactly, yeah, let's go to the dinner. This is going to be a great night together. Why? Because that response honors and blesses his wife. That shows that his motivation is proper. He communicates with that attitude and with that statement that he treasures her, not merely what she can give him. And who would not feel honored to be considered someone's treasure? There's a similar reality when it comes to us and God. Yes, it is our duty to obey God. It is only right because he's the creator, he's redeemed us, and yes, we will experience various blessings from God when we seek him and when we obey him. But our ultimate motivation for obedience must be love. It is love. It is even the prospect of gladness in Christ himself. This glorifies God because it shows everyone in the universe that God is the greatest treasure, that God himself is life and joy. So more reinforcement of what we've been talking about. Our obedience is to be motivated by love and thankfulness. Now, as we said last time, true love for God is not always gushing with obvious emotion. And this love must fight against the flesh and the weaknesses of the body that come by living in a broken world, that we get tired and that we get hungry and things like that. But let this sink into our souls. If you are a true Christian, you fundamentally love Jesus. And love is to motivate all your obedience. Now, we definitely saw this truth last week in our books when we examined various scriptures under Roman numeral 1, the call to obedience. But today, I want to talk with you about the other points in our chapter. We want to walk through the rest of the chapter's main points and then go through a few practical application questions at the end of today's lesson. So if you haven't already, if you have your books, please turn to chapter 12 what's called Lesson 12 in your book. Let's look at the next point. Roman numeral 2 says, Obedience marks a true believer. Page 1, or, yeah. Your page is going to be different than my teacher edition, but it's Roman numeral 2, chapter 12 on obedience. Obedience marks a true believer. And I think that's a truth that we've pretty well established at this point. Obedience doesn't save someone, but obedience is the observable fruit in the life of someone who is saved because that person has been regenerated to love the loving Savior. Now look at the two questions under Roman numeral 2. A focuses on 1 John 2, 3 to 4, and that's this chapter's memory verse, so why don't you turn there in your Bibles. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John 2. We'll actually read 3 to 6, and if you're using the Pew Bibles, that's on page 1,218. 1 John 2, we'll read verses 3 to 6. Let's hear what the Apostle John says. He says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says, he abides in him, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 
It's a pretty straightforward truth. You see question one in your books. It's asking us, what does obeying the word of God demonstrate? According to this verse, It does demonstrate a love for God, but in, in, in particularly the words of this passage. What does keeping his commandments demonstrate? That we've come to know him. That's specifically what it says. Uh, and notice the certainty emphasized for that concept. Back in verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him. And with certainty, we can also answer question two in our books. What does, continual, what does continuous disobedience to the word of God indicate? That we do not know God. And if we say we do, that we are just lying and trying to make God out to be a liar. The truth is not in us. We can know this with certainty. If you keep his commandments, you've come to know God. If you don't keep his commandments, you have not come to know God. And by the obedience that we're talking about here, we're not talking about grit-your-teeth human effort. We're not talking about self-righteous legalism because even these verses indicate, as, as Mike was already alluding to, that the obedience to God that we're talking about is really an outworking of what? Love. He says, in the people who know God, the love of God has been perfected. This is a love from God that becomes love for God and love for others. Now, B, under Roman numeral 2, asks us to look at Matthew 7.21. I'm not going to take us there just to save us some time, but you may remember this passage. This is where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but who will enter the kingdom of, of heaven? That's the question under B. Jesus says, But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. So doing the will of the Father, obeying what God called you to do, is what characterizes those who will enter the kingdom of heaven and characterizes a true believer. So I think we're definitely getting the concept now. You must love Jesus and believe in him in order to be saved. But you cannot say that you love Jesus if you do not do what he says. But what if you kind of do what he says? What if you obey in some areas but not in others? Does partial obedience count for something with God? Can you do some worshipy things to make up for where you're not obedient? Well, let's look at Roman numeral three, examples of disobedience. Under letter A, we get one of the most instructive examples of disobedience in the Bible, and that is the episode with King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 1-24. Now this I do want you to look at together with me. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15, 1-24. So go on near the beginning portion of the Old Testament-ish. So 1 Samuel 15, this is page 297 if you're using the Pew Bibles. The episode unfolds for most of the chapter. I'm going to give you some of the events in summary form, and we'll just focus on certain verses. In this account, God commands Saul to execute God's judgment on the Amalekites. And he specifically orders Saul to exterminate them. Leave no people alive, not a single one, and leave no animals alive. They are to be all given over to the ban. That is, they've all been given to God under his judgment. Saul 
only partially obeys this order. He destroys most of the Amalekites, but he leaves King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. He also allows the Israelites to keep the best of the Amalekite animals. So God sends Samuel to confront Saul about Saul's disobedience. And let's see how this confrontation plays out. We'll pick up starting in verse 13 and read down to verse 24, making a few comments as we go along. Verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, or blessed are you of Yahweh. I have carried out the command of Yahweh. So notice, does, Paul, does Saul think he's been obedient or disobedient? He thinks he's been obedient. But Samuel said, verse 14, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Which is a not-so-subtle way for Samuel to point out what? These animals are still alive, which means... You have not obeyed. You have not done what God said. But verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. So notice, how does Saul excuse his disobedience? Yeah, so first he blames others. Oh, the people did this. But what's another way he excuses it? Yeah, these are going to be sacrifices. I know this isn't what God said, but we had a better idea. This is how we'll show love to God. And by the way, likely in these sacrifices, the worshipers, those who are offering up the animals, are going to be allowed to eat of the meats of them. So it's not just like, oh, they're just a whole bunch of pious people who want to give these things over to God. Oh, no, no, they're going to benefit. They're going to benefit from these sacrifices, as uh, Yahweh is supposed to as well. Anyways, let's go on in verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what Yahweh said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and Yahweh anointed you king over Israel? And Yahweh sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh? So Samuel's not pulling any punches anymore, not trying to be subtle. He calls out Saul for his sin. How will Saul respond? Verse 20. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of Yahweh and went on the mission on which the Yahweh sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to Yahweh your God at Gilgal. So how does Saul respond to the clear rebuke of Samuel? Basically the same way he did before. He doubles down on his claim that partial obedience equals obedience, and that the taking of the animals for offerings is justified, and that really it's the people's fault. But then verse 22. Samuel said, Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. So which does God prefer? Full obedience or sacrifice in place of full obedience? Full obedience. Why? Verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. 
Now, according to the rest of the Old Testament, how does God feel about divination, iniquity, and idolatry? He hates it. What else can we say? Yes, he, that was what the people of the land practiced, and they were driven out, exterminated. That's what Israel was called to do. And if any Israelite was found doing these things, in particular divination and idolatry, what was supposed to happen to them? They're supposed to be killed. They're supposed to be put to death by capital punishment. And what does God equate to these capital crimes? Rebellion. Insubordination. Even if it's just partial. It says, that's like divination to me. That's like idolatry to me. So of course, of course obedience is better than sacrifice. Notice it, verse 23 goes on to say, because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. What does that mean for Saul? That's right. That's right. The kingdom is going to be taken away from Saul. And ultimately, another line, another dynasty is going to rule in Israel. Notice verse 24, finally. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of Yahweh and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. This is interesting. What does Saul finally admit? That he sinned that he wasn't obedient, even though he insisted that he was. And he also admits the reason why. What was the reason? He feared the people. He says he listened to their voice. How does fearing the people explain Saul's partial obedience? He leaves Agag alive. More importantly, he leaves these animals, the best of the animals. What does that have to do with fearing people? Exactly. The people obviously wanted these animals. They probably wanted the meat of the sacrifices. They wanted to enjoy them, especially after the, all the hard work of fighting and putting to death these enemies. Saul feared upsetting the people. He feared losing the support of the people for his kingship. So as Mark said, he actually sought the approval of men more than the approval of God. He gave the people what he wanted, what they wanted. Saul admits the internal source of his external sin. What is tragically ironic, though, about this valuation and these actions of Saul? He wanted to preserve, he wanted to keep the people's approval, partially so he could preserve his kingship. But what's tragically ironic about that? In doing so, he ensured that he would lose the kingship. So clearly we see from this passage that partial obedience is not obedience, and that religious, religial, religious ritual cannot make up for sin. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, that's a really good point, Mark. That Saul and David really contrast in how they view the kingship. David sees it as from God. God's the one who bestows kingship, and he can take it away. 
So if you're concerned about kingship, you should be concerned about God. But Saul saw it more from a horizontal perspective that, oh, I got to keep the people on side if I'm going to keep the kingship. And you're right, David wouldn't even take the kingship for himself uh, because he, he saw that that was really God's prerogative. One other important truth that we see from Saul's negative example is that disobedience has consequences. Disobedience has consequences. One of Satan's oldest lies, even in the garden, is that you can sin without suffering for it. You don't have to suffer any consequences if you go after sin. But this is fundamentally not true in God's universe. In fact, we could say the poison of sin is transferred immediately upon commission. Right when you participate in the act, you've already, you're already experiencing the damage that sin brings. You can limit the damage of sin, and you can maximize the healing that is necessary for the damage of sin by quick repentance. But every sin has its consequences, which only get worse the longer you persist in the sin. And some consequences cannot be fully undone in this life, even upon repentance. What are some of the damaging consequences of sin, even for believers? Broken fellowship, broken relationship, damaged relationships, loss of reputation, loss of testimony. What else? I think of sexual sin in particular. Sin against our own bodies. Yeah. Yeah. So, with sexual sin, but... Oh, yeah. Sexual sin in particular, there's a degradation of the body, but also sometimes physical effects on the body. And certainly that's true of other sins as well. Anger, anxiety, these are going to have effects on your body. This is scientifically verified, actually, that you are much more likely to get sick or to develop certain diseases if you have a habit of anger or a habit of anxiety. So it's damage to your body. It's damage to your relationships. What else? Could result in death. Yeah. Physical death. And of course, if you never repent of the sin, it could result in eternal death. There's a lot of different damages that come from sin. There's guilt. There's the loss of a clean conscience. There's the loss of peace. There's the loss of assurance. There's a seared conscience, potentially. There's increased hardening of heart, which leads to more sin. Yes, more sin could be a consequence of sin. And multiply damage. Sickness, illness, injury, negative bodily effects, even death. Damage of sundered relationships. Financial loss. Dwayne, you had something. Yeah, First John 3, or yeah, so the idea of shame, dishonor. Um, beyond that, there's simply God's displeasure, the sorrow, the loss of fellowship with, and the joy in the Lord. Hindered prayers. For the unbeliever who persists, judgment. For the believer who persists, painful chastening. And, of course, eternal destruction for those who will never repent. Now, two quick clarifications regarding the consequences of sin. One, let's remember that any chastening from God for sin on believers is loving discipline meant to move those believers to repentance. It is not angry punishment meant to satisfy God's justice. And this, we know, must be the case because... According to the scriptures, where were all believers' sins, past, present, and future, paid for once and for all? The cross. 
So God would not be just if he judged us again for a sin which was already judged in Jesus Christ. So what this means practically is that we must remove the idea from our minds that even when you've repented of a sin, God still has to zap you for it sometime, somewhere in your life because God must be just. No, that justice has already been taken care of. Thank the Lord for that. Another point, be careful about interpreting negative circumstances as God's chastening you for sin. The Bible does teach that God does sometimes bring hard circumstances on a stubborn believer to move him to repentance. We see this in 1 Corinthians 11. We see this in James 5, particularly with illness. But many times, God brings trials, even severe trials, into a person's life. A whole, ca- uh, a whole company of trials into a person's life, not as a response to unrepentant sin, but merely because God is going to use those trials to refine the believer and glorify himself. Very famous example of this. Remember the man born blind in John 9? The disciples see this man. They ask the question, Teacher, who sinned? Who's responsible for this tragic defect of this man? Was it his own sin? Did he somehow sin in the womb? Or was it his parents' sin that brought about this tragic development? And you know what Jesus says in reply? He says it was neither. John 9, 3. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So brethren, when tragedy or great trial strikes, do not automatically assume it's chastening for sin. Be like, I must have sinned terribly for this to happen to me. That's not necessarily true. God may be doing something else mysterious for his glory. But if you've been living in known, unrepentant sin and trial strikes, especially a trial directly related to your sin, well, heed Jesus' other words in John 5.14. We saw this not too long ago in preaching. John 5.14, Jesus tells the man who had been healed of his sickness, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Don't automatically assume that God is chasing you, but if you've been living in unrepentant sin, then use the trials as a a loving prod from God to return to him. Yeah, Glenda. uh, Yeah, there's another great example. Glenda, yeah, bringing up Job. Remember, Job did nothing wrong. In fact, the trials came upon him because he did right. He did nothing wrong, but his friends assumed, look, if you have things this bad, it can only mean you're in sin. So be careful in thinking that for yourself, but also be careful in thinking about that for others. If you hear about believers in the body who are suddenly going through a whole bunch of trials, don't be like, oh, they must be in sin. They probably got something they need to repent of. You don't know that. And remember, a lot of times those trials don't come from sin. So don't prejudge your brethren that way. Now, just as disobedience brings cursing, brings consequences, the flip side is also true in a different way, positive way. Obedience brings blessing, though often delayed. Obedience brings blessing, and for that blessing, the righteous must wait patiently in faith. And we can see this true principle exemplified in the father of faith, Abraham. Look at Roman numeral four in your books. Examples of obedience, and then A, we have Abraham's obedience. And question one asks us, uh, gives us two different verse references asking us what were Abraham's great acts of obedience. So if you're familiar with these portions of the Bible, what were 
Abraham's two great acts of obedience. Yeah, Glenda? Right, that was the big one in the beginning that he left his country and his relatives and journeyed to Canaan because God said, I, I'm going to bless you there. So you go. And as Glenda mentioned, as the New Testament emphasizes, he didn't know where he was going. This was definitely not an easy thing to do, but he did it. He obeyed. But what was the other big notable act of obedience? Yeah, the sacrifice of his son Isaac. He was totally willing. He was about to do it as an act of obedience. Now, do you think these acts of obedience were easy to do? This was automatic that he didn't even have to worry about it. He's like, it's so easy. No, probably not. I mean, journeying a place you've never been to, you don't know, and taking your son, who's just probably come of marriageable age, he's ready to have more kids, extend the line of inheritance, and now you have to put that son to death? The son that you love? The son that all the promises are connected to? No, that was not easy. And you can see in the picture that the artist has given Abraham a very pained expression. That was not easy, and yet Abraham did it. How did he do it? Ultimately, it was God working through him, but another way to say that is he loved and he believed the Lord above all. And the New Testament emphasizes that both of these acts, they were born from faith, even that God can do miracles. And God promised Abraham reward for Abraham's obedience. And that reward came eventually. Look at the top of the next page in your books with question two, which I'm going to modify a little bit. It's asking us what rewards did God promise to Abraham for his obedience? Rather than Genesis 26, let me take you to Genesis 22. Actually, I'll just read this to you. But as you just listen to me as I give this to you. Genesis 22, verses 15 to 18. This is what God says to Abraham after Abraham demonstrated willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Genesis 22:15. Then the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because... You have obeyed my voice. So if you listen to that, God gives four promises of blessing to Abraham as a result of his obedience. What was one of them? That's right. Incredibly multiplied descendants. What an honor for a person, especially in that time. What else? Those descendants also will possess the gate of their enemies. That is, that they're going to succeed. They're going to be triumphant, even in conflicts with enemies. He says, I will greatly bless you. And then he says, I, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, there's an interesting side note about how this connects with the unilateral Abrahamic covenant promise in Genesis 12. I have an interesting explanation of that, which we can explore another time. But certainly we can see here from Genesis 22 the clear example of the principle that true obedience brings with it blessing and reward. But we don't only see this epitomized in Abraham. We see this with so many people who 
obey and follow God in the Bible with a whole heart. And, of course, we see it best in the Son of God, in Jesus himself. This is the example that we have in B, under Roman numeral 4, for Christ's example of obedience. We have uh, several questions, all related to different verses. Question one is based on John 4.34. John 4.34 says, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So, question one, what was Christ's primary concern on earth? The will of his Father, the will of God, not his own. Question two takes us to Luke twenty-two forty-two, which is Jesus again speaking. Luke twenty-two forty-two, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Question two, even when facing the cross, what was Christ's attitude? Exactly, he valued the Father's will over his. So it wasn't just his general outlook in his life, it was specifically through the hardest things. Even in this, even what's going to cause me to suffer the most, your will be done. That's what I'm seeking. And then question three takes us to Philippians 2.8. To what extent was Jesus willing to be obedient? Philippians 2.8 says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by, coming, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what's the answer to question three? Yeah, it's a death. Shameful death, prolonged death, excruciating death. The worst kind of death you can imagine, he says, I'm willing to be obedient even to that. And he was. But let's not forget the next verse. This is not listed in your workbooks, but Philippians 2.9 says, Philippians 2.9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Which is above every name. So as with Abraham, we see that as a result of Jesus' obedience, the Father rewarded him. The Father blessed him for his obedience. But did the Son, did Jesus see that reward? Did Jesus see the fullness of that reward right away? He did not. In fact, you could even say he hasn't yet seen the full reward. We don't yet see all the kingdoms of the earth subject to the Son in an external way. We don't see every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which is what the next two verses in the passage talk about. So there's still that, that prospect of reward coming even for the Son. But certainly while he was on the earth, Jesus had to wait for much of his reward, even while he was obedient. And this was true, this is true of all God's people. Both Abraham and Jesus show us that obedience they show us what obedience born from love and faith looks like. It does look like full obedience even in the hard things, but obedience which will have its reward in the proper time. Both Abraham and Jesus looked forward and found joy in that, which is why Hebrews can say, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. And Hebrews also says that Abraham looked forward to the inheritance which he had not received but knew that his descendants would, and knew that he would in the city which has foundations. Speaking of rewards for obedience, Roman numeral 5 takes on that topic explicitly, the promise and blessings of obedience. Now, rather than looking at all the verse references given here, let's just brainstorm together again. What are some of the promised blessings of obedience to which we should look forward to when seeking to follow after Christ? Yeah.
Yeah. Hmm. So that's a wonderful promise. That's something that we give up and we don't obey. Yeah. Uh, it's our understanding of him and doing. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. So a lot of good things there. I'll just summarize the, in the briefest way. But the prospect of knowing Jesus more and being able to walk more closely with him, that has got to be one of the greatest blessings of obedience. That's not the only one. What else? Closest friends. Yeah, so kind of connected with that, but Jesus says, I'll call you friends. I'm going uh, to be able to abide with you in a way that is a blessing to you. What else? What are other blessings of obedience? Yeah, Danny. Yeah, peace. Clean conscience. A fundamental joy. We could add to that assurance of salvation. Deliverance from many troubles in this life. You go to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, it's like, follow the Lord. You will escape a whole bunch of troubles you otherwise would have gone into. Deliverance from the greatest trouble, hell, death, God's judgment, confidence during trials, though not freedom from trials, improved health, generally. I think of that proverb that says, um, if you will fear the Lord and follow him, it will be health to your bones. Healed and growing relationships with many others. A good reputation. A good testimony. Honor. Financial prosperity, sometimes. Greater knowledge of and fellowship with the Trinity and Christ. Greater usefulness to Jesus. Jesus' commendation. Heavenly reward. Increased rule in God's kingdom. Enjoyment of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, just being free from sin. Yeah, becoming a slave of Jesus and uh, not a slave of sin, which is a hard master. Now, I do want to stress, though, that some of these blessings that are generally promised for obedience, especially if they apply to circumstances in this life, they are not guaranteed. You may see improved health, relationships, and finances, for following Jesus. That is often true, generally true, but it may not be true of you all the time. Being a Christian may actually cost you in these areas. You may find that your health is worsened when somebody beats you up for being a Christian, or that your relationships are worsened because your family doesn't want to have anything to do with you anymore, and your finances are worsened because they don't want to give you a job anymore because you're a Christian. Yeah, even with those things, God promises, I'll meet your needs. I'll take care of you. Trust my wisdom. Even if you suffer lack, I'm, I'm going to take care of you. Though really, we shouldn't need the promise of everything going well for us in this life as motivation to obey. Because the greatest reward, the greatest motivation for obedience is always what? Kind of what really Mark was getting at before. It's God. It's knowing God. The other rewards are just encouragements alongside this greatest one. Indeed, if you find yourself more excited about the other rewards, the other blessings promised, like you're more excited about going to heaven than knowing Jesus, 
or improved health, relationships with finance, that really seems like the great treasure to you rather than fellowship with the Son of God. If those are true, or if those become true of you, then your heart is not in the right place when it comes to obedience. You're actually loving the gifts. You've come to love the gifts more than the giver, which the Bible recognizes as idolatry. You are dishonoring God, and you need to repent and put your priorities straight. Say, Lord, I do appreciate that you, you promised this thing, but that's not the ultimate thing. That's not where I'm going to find life and joy. I recognize that. It's only in you. God is the only reward that satisfies. The other rewards, when rightly considered, are just ways of enjoying him who is the greatest reward. And this is true even of the kingdom to come. You know, the Bible says some pretty interesting things about what will be in Messiah's kingdom. Even things that are physical, literal joys. There will be dominion. There will be houses. There will be crowns. There will be food. There will be drink. There will be all manner of good things from God. But it is not those things for which we must be most enthused most enamored. Those things are really just means. They will be means for us to be even more joyful in our God. And that's true of even the passing good things that we enjoy now. You say you enjoy friendship, you enjoy marriage, you enjoy good food, you enjoy fellowship with other believers in the church. Those are all good things. But your enjoyment of those things is to be part of your enjoyment of God. God, I don't look to this food ultimately to satisfy me, but I recognize it as another, another clear aspect of how good you are. Lord, you are so good to allow me to enjoy this, this passing blessing. That's the right way to think about the rewards. They're just ways for us to enjoy the ultimate reward even more. All right, now at this point we've seen the call to obedience. We've seen examples of obedience and disobedience. We've seen the blessings of obedience and the consequences of disobedience. Let's now look at Roman numeral 6 in our books, which says areas of obedience. In which part of our lives do we owe obedience to Jesus? All of them. Letter A wants us to consider Matthew 28.20, which says, Matthew 28.20, this is part of Jesus' great commission, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The question that we're given in A is, what are all Christians to be taught concerning Christ's commands? Well, it's got to be to observe all that Jesus commanded us. And notice that word, all. If Jesus commanded it, we must and should obey it can't pick our favorite commands and leave out the other ones. No. You either choose to be obedient to Jesus in all areas or you're not obedient at all. You're not looking to be obedient at all. How many aspects of life do Jesus' commands touch? Generally speaking, all of them. What you think, what you desire, what you believe, what you say, what you do, how you interact with people. And speaking of people, which relationships do Jesus' commands impact? All of them. Your family, your friends, your bosses, the governors, strangers, church leaders, other Christians, unbelievers. Jesus has commands for each one of those relationships. And you and I are not only commanded to do them, but we are to teach them to one another. One interesting thing 
related to what I just said, is that the New Testament is emphatic that certain types of relationships are key for manifesting obedience to Jesus. Tell me what the following relationships have in common. Children and parents, wives and husbands, slaves and masters, Christians who are part of a church and the leaders of that church, and then subjects and governing authorities. What do all those relationships have in common? Okay, they all are definitely governed and impacted by Scripture, but what did you say, Mike? There's an aspect of obedience in them. These are all authority-submission relationships. Authority-submission relationships. And do most people today have problems with authority-submission relationships? They certainly do. Uh, how so? Yeah, anybody in the submission role has a desire not to submit. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be said, uh, uh, told, you can do this, you can't do that, and I require you to do this. That's not the only problem. What else is a problem in authority submission relationships? That's right. On the flip side, many who have the authority role in an authority submission relationship, they abuse their authority. They don't exercise it properly. They either try to force submission of the other person in an unkind way, or they try and use their authority, submission, or authority position for their own ends, or they even abdicate their authority position. Yeah, I've been given this role, but I don't really want to do it, so just figure things out yourself. And this problem is particularly great in Western culture where ideas like submission or obedience are often seen as antiquated or even oppressive. Oh, you still believe that? We've progressed way past that. But what does Jesus teach about authority submission relationships in his word? Like in Romans 13, Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 2 and 3, Ephesians 5 and 6, Colossians 3 and 4, they're all saying the same thing. What does Jesus teach about authority submission relationships? That's right. He says, for those in the submission role, submit for my sake. And for those in the authority role? That's right. So what must they do? Right. For those in authority, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go back and talk about the submission, and then I'll say something again about the authority. Jesus teaches that Christians are to submit for the Lord's sake to whatever God-ordained authorities exist. God has ordained many of the authorities in our lives, and he says, submit for my sake. And as for the authorities themselves, authorities, particularly Christians in authority, are to exercise their authority in loving accountability, or authority lovingly in accountability to God. They are, they are to be proper authorities. To say this another way, Christ teaches those in submission roles to submit in such a way that those persons make it easier for those in authority to rule over them lovingly. Make it easy for the other person to do his job. And in the same way, Christ teaches those in authority, those with authority roles, to rule and lead in such a way that the, they make it easier for the persons in submission roles to obey and follow gladly. But what about when one side or the other in this authority-submission relationship is not being obedient to Christ. 
They're not fulfilling their side of the bargain. Therefore, they don't seem worthy of loving sacrificial leadership or respectful voluntary submission. Well, what does Christ teach his followers to do in those situations? Yeah, you still exercise what Christ told you to do regardless of what the other person's doing. Apart from whatever constitutes disobedience to Christ, you continue if you're in authority to lovingly lead and you continue if you're in submission to reverently submit. right yeah i think their your parallel back to david and saul i think is really good because otherwise we might be tempted to think hey this is not going to make practical sense if i do what jesus tells me to do i'm just going to enable and reinforce wrong behavior in the other person if i continue to love this person who's not submitting to me or if i continue to submit to this person who's who's not governing as he ought well they're just going to keep on getting worse that's only if you're thinking horizontally. But if you recognize that you have a judge in heaven who's a judge over you and that other person, he says, I'm going to take care of you. You do what I've called you to do, and I'm going to take care of you, just like was David's attitude, as, as you mentioned, Mark. In fact, the Bible explicitly commands us that when the other person in that authority submission relationship is not doing what he should do, that we should continue to do what we've been called to do. And it gives us a few reasons why. This particularly comes from 1 Peter 2 and 3. Why should we, why should leaders still lovingly, sacrificially lead those who are proving disobedience to Christ's word? And why should followers still reverently, confidently submit to those who are proving disobedience to Christ's word? What's one reason? Say that again, uh, Tony. What do you mean by example? Yeah, that's right. So certainly this is going to be as a testimony of the value of God. You say, I'm not doing this for the authority person's sake. I'm doing this for the Lord's sake. And everybody's going to see that. In fact, when we go earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, he talks about keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles because when they slander you and mistreat you, eventually that slander is going to be turned to praise towards God because they see your good deeds. So that's one reason. What's another reason? Okay, they will see that the Lord is gracious. How so? Mm-hmm. Why are you this good? It's supposed to be this way, and you are this way. That could glorify God. Then they'll ask you, why are you so hard? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so connecting with Tony's point, this is going to be a huge testimony of God. You're going to be exhibiting the grace of God in your gracious behavior. And not only are they going to notice that and perhaps um, come to believe in Jesus, but it has a strong probability of changing their behavior towards you. Actually, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2 says, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2, speaking of wives, 
In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So God takes what we would maybe normally expect if we're only thinking horizontally, and he says, you haven't factored me in yet. You haven't factored the power of um, my grace working through your life. You continuing to do what's right when others are mistreating you is going to have a convicting effect on them. It's going to actually, many times, win them. Win them to Christ or win them to um, repent of their behavior towards you. What were you going to say, Rich? Okay. Yeah. Right. So that is a good question, Rich, and one that we don't have full time to explore right now. But this question is, what about an abusive authority relationship, even physical abuse or other types of abuse? Certainly the Christian is able to access all means of redressing that abuse and even to escape that abuse that are biblically allowed. So using the government, saying like, I'm going to call the police. That is totally legitimate. Or um, bringing the matter before the church, if it is uh, another believer who's involved and saying, this is what the person has been doing. Here's the evidence of it. Here's a witness of it. And that man is, is called to repentance. A man or woman could, could be either. But So there's certainly things that a person can do. This is not what I'm saying here. And the Bible's not saying, oh, you just need to allow yourself to be battered. Now, if you've got something you can do to change that situation, then please do so. But remember to whom these commands were originally given. Sometimes they, people were being physically battered. Think about the slaves. They were being abused in a whole bunch of different ways, and they had no recourse. If you do have a recourse, use it. But they didn't. So what was the command to them? Yes. Right here in 1 Peter 2, it says, Submit yourself to your masters, not just the good and just, but even the unreasonable. Why? Because this finds favor with God. That's another reason why we do this. This isn't just to win the other person to Christ, but it is to please Christ himself. And it's also in order to express trust in God's justice and his coming reward and vindication. I read this scripture to you last time, but it's worth reading again. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 23. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You're going to be a testimony. You're going to win people this way. You're going to please Christ, and you're going to express your trust in God's justice. When you continue to be obedient in the role that God has given you even when the other person is not. And this is totally different than the world. This is one of the fundamental ways that Christians are going to manifest obedience to God because this is not what the world does. The world says, you treat me well, I'll treat you well. That's not the way that Christians operate because we follow the example of Christ, because we love Christ and we want to be like him. But you may ask, is this possible? Come on. Is this truly possible? How can anyone practice authority and submission like this, like Jesus commands us to do? Yeah, it is possible. Not by human effort, though. 
only by supernatural empowerment, accessed by faith and love in Jesus Christ. Hang on to questions. I have a few other things I want to say, and we're running short on time. The thrust of our last point here, Roman numeral 7, our attitude toward obedience is basically along these lines. You cannot obey Christ, especially in authority submission relationships, if you do not view yourself first and foremost as a slave of Christ, bound in love and gratitude to your new heavenly master. Only those with true faith can say to God, your will be done, even when I don't fully understand. And only those who love Christ can suffer for his sake, saying, I will wait for your justice and reward. We end in a sense where we began. Is your obedience motivated by love and thankfulness to Jesus? Even in the hard things. If it's not, it's time to repent. Time to repent and become a true disciple or get back to being a true disciple as Jesus called you. Believe his promises. Now, I wanted to take some time to briefly deal with three rubber-meets-the-road obedience application questions. Number one, should I still obey externally if my heart is not right internally? If God is about obedience from the heart, what about when my heart's not right? Should I just refrain from obedience at all? That may seem like the person is trying to avoid hypocrisy and there's some pious sentiment there. But refraining from obedience at all is not the answer. Do not compound your internal disobedience with external disobedience as well. Don't excuse one by the other. The real answer is to get your heart right internally. Immediately deal with your heart so that you can obey inside and out. Be like, can't obey correctly on the inside, so I won't be on the outside. No, that's the wrong way to think about it. You get yourself right on the inside. Repent as you need to, and then you can obey externally as well. Similar, in a similar vein, some people do not partake, some Christians do not partake of the Lord's table when they are in unrepentant sin or conflict. There's the warning about in the scriptures about not taking it in an unworthy way, and so they say, I want to heed that warning. I am dealing with this sin. I haven't repented yet. I'm in conflict. I haven't sought to reconcile yet, so I'm not going to partake of the Lord's table. Is this a good response to the Lord's warning about not taking it in an unworthy way? I would submit to you that it is not. Because you are commanded in the Scriptures to partake of the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you do it. So rather than disobey this command because your heart is still not right, get your heart right. Get your relationships right. And then come and be obedient. Partake and joyfully, uh, joyfully partake in obedience with your brethren. All right, that's one question. Number two, what should I do when I feel like I can't obey and when I feel like sin is inevitable? This is a common experience, Right? You might feel, ah, there's, there's no way I'm going to be able to share the gospel with this person. Oh, I can't help but click on this immoral website. I can't take any more unkindness from this person. I'm just going to explode. How do you respond to that? You've got to respond with faith over your feelings. Feelings are important, but they are not always properly informed. Sometimes the flesh, your old man, 
It has gotten hold of your feelings, and your feelings are no longer telling you what's true. So you have to stand and act on something more reliable than your feelings. And what is that? The Word of God, which is completely trustworthy. And what does the Word of God say about your obedience? No matter how you feel, that if you are a believer and if you have faith, you can do it. You can obey. And this is important. Because thinking that you can't do something becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You cut yourself off from the overcoming resurrection power of Christ when you don't think you have it. So when fighting with temptation, you must do the opposite. You must take hold of both the forgiving and transforming grace of Jesus. You say, I have sinned in the past. Maybe I've even sinned a little bit right now, but I know that Jesus completely forgives that because he promises it, whether I feel like that's true or not. And I also know that Jesus says, I can obey him if I will rely on him. So I'm going to do that, no matter how I feel. I tell you, it's amazing what believers can do when they simply believe they can do it in Christ. And you meet some of those believers sometimes, and you say, how are you enduring this situation? How can you continue to be gracious to that husband, or how could you continue to be gracious to that wife or to that boss? You know what the answer is? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Number three, why does it seem like I never achieve lasting victory over habitual sins? I so frequently get angry. I keep coming back to lust. I can't seem to get rid of anxiety. I battled for so long. Shouldn't I just accept that I'm never going to overcome this sin? What do you think the answer to that question is? Well, may I answer that question with a question. Do you love Jesus Christ? Because if you love Jesus Christ, how can you ever think of throwing in the towel when your obedience is not ultimately for your own sake, but for his who died for you? You can't give up. God is worthy of more than that. You belong to him. If you are his soldier, you can't give up the good fight. But we have to be understanding. We know the feeling of discouragement and even hopelessness that can come over a person who has fought and failed time after time. We should acknowledge on the one hand that we are all going to continue to sin, to fail. Even if theoretically we could always say no to sin and yes to Christ by the power of the Spirit, the fact is that none of us are going to do that perfectly. But what did we learn from Paul's example in Philippians 3? We saw this last time. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for the prize of Christ and greater Christ-likeness, that must always be our attitude. There's always hope in Jesus Christ, but we must help one another in this. I found as a biblical counselor that many times Christians, they don't find success. They're dominated by particular sins because they don't know and they don't use all the fundamental resources that God has given them to overcome that sin. They're not taking advantage of the Bible, prayer, the people of the church, instruction, Bible memorization. They need to be shown those resources and how they can use them to overcome. I've also found that many Christians cannot get rid of characteristic sin habits because they've never dealt with the root causes of that sin, namely the ungodly thinking, beliefs, and desires that are fueling those sinful habits. 
You've got to get down to the root. You've got to get down to the heart if you hope to have lasting change. You see this, for example, in anger. Somebody who speaks angrily has these outbursts of anger. You can't just say, you need to stop being angry. You need to stop using angry words. That's not going to get to the root. Why are you angry? What is it that you feel like you have a right to that you're not getting, and therefore you feel justified in expressing your anger? A lot of believers haven't gotten down to the root, but we can help one another do that. You can say, tell me a little bit about what, what you do and what you were thinking. Oh, I think this might be the thing that you're valuing too much in your heart. So if you're fighting a losing battle, let me just say in summary, don't give up. There is hope in Jesus, but take, advantages of the, take advantage of the resources he's given you. Talk to a mature brother or sister so that person can help show you how you can overcome. You can overcome in Jesus. All right, that's it for this week. Sorry for going over time. One more lesson in our FOF series, and that's guidance, how to know God's will. We'll talk about that next time. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for your truth. Thank you that we have been freed to become slaves to Christ. We've been freed to obey. Lord, by faith, help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.